This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance from Shane Clearborn. The suffering way of the cross is the ironic and astounding way to bring life to the world. Unless a seed dies, it cannot bring life. It's not that the cross is just some necessary step to accomplishing some religious plan of salvation, an abstract scheme that lives, leaves Jesus politically meaningless. The cross is the way. It is a completely different way to view the world, success, and the meaning of history. As one theologian put it, here at the cross is the man who loves his enemies, the man whose righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, who being rich became poor, who gives his robe to those who took his cloak, who prays for those who spitefully use him. The cross is not a detour or a hurdle on the way to the kingdom, nor is it even the way to the kingdom. It is the kingdom come. A reading of scripture from Psalm 22, 23-30, as rendered by Nan Merrill. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to love's way. And all the families of the nation shall bow down with grateful hearts. For power and authority belong to the Most High, who rules over the nations. Yes, to the Most High shall all the proud of the earth be humbled. Before the Creator shall all bow, who go down to the dust, and who cannot sustain their own lives. Posterity shall know and serve love, telling of the one who abides in all. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Well, we are blessed to have a guest preacher with us this morning. Uh, Beth Carroll is a pastor at Hope Church, uh, another church in our downtown here community. And uh, Beth is an instigator for justice, an advocate for inclusion, and it's just a great privilege to be a colleague of hers in the Greater Kingdom work here in Holland. So help me to welcome Beth Carroll. before. I kind of like that. I want that on my business card. Um, Greetings from Hope Church. Um, They're just as thrilled as I am that I am here to join you in worship today. And uh, so we send our blessings and greetings to you. Um, Just a couple notes of who I am. I'm a pastor of discipleship, which the longer I am a pastor of discipleship, I'm realizing that really all that means is we don't know what to call you. So we're just going to kind of give you that phrase. Um, And it's a lot shorter than saying somebody who works with youth and young adults, and I do a lot of um, community engagement work and um, preaching here now and then and whatever I'm told to do. So, But I love it. It's great. So that's what I do. Um, I have two kids. Um, they're actually both students at Hope College, and I was just married two months ago, and so this wonderful man right here, you know, I was going to call him out. This is Rich. And um, actually, Rich and I were, uh, I was lamenting to Rich, you know, a few minutes before this that, you know, that it's one of, I think the thing about preaching that I hate the most is that you have to give a sermon title to somebody before you write the sermon because they need to print it in the bulletin and like 50% of the time this title has nothing to do with what you're preaching on. And this is one of those circumstances. And then Rich asked me, he's like, well, what do you think you should have named it? And, he, and I said, I have no idea. And so he said, well, what is it about? And I told him, and he's like, oh. He's like, maybe you should have called it Life Sucks and Then You Die. So you 
you're welcome. <laughs> There's your new title. So, with that said, let's spend some time reflecting on uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all of this quite openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on the divine things, but on human things. He called the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and profit and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So, I think that there are four, at least four big myths about Christians. Myth number one, that being a Christian automatically means you are pro-life, pro-gun, and have at least three shirts emblazoned with the American flag. <laughs> Myth number two, that we are contractually obligated to serve really bad coffee at church services, present company excluded. <laughs> Myth number three, that we don't bake cakes for queer trans people. Myth number four, that women can't speak in church. But today, I want to talk about a fifth myth, and it's kind of a doozy. It's a two-sided coin, if you will. On the one side, it is the myth that being a Christian means signing on to a life of eternal happiness and joy, and that hardships will either disappear or end with a nice, neat bow on it, like the end of an 80s teen movie. As if upon everybody's baptism, everybody's given a puppy, tap dancing lessons, and a massive lollipop. Or the other side of that same myth is that it teaches that experience suffering or loss is the path to be closer to God. As if the best way to be close to God is through self-flagellation or believing that God gives us suffering as a way to get closer to God, or which makes God the divine punisher. 
Both sides of this coin wrongly teach us that if we have control over suffering, either by avoiding it altogether or creating it for ourselves, that this is what it will mean to be a Christian. So let me give you some examples of how this plays out. You maybe have heard megachurch pastors who say things like, when you focus on being a blessing, God will bless you with abundance. Or well-meaning congregants who say things like, just pray a little harder. Or God doesn't give us more than we can handle when you tell them about your addiction to food or that your marriage is falling apart. Christians who say things like, name it and claim it when you don't know where the money for rent or baby formula is going to come from. Or my personal favorite catch-all phrase, everything happens for a reason. I believe that these ways of being a Christian are not only fake, they cheapen life, they cheapen what it means to be in relationship with God, and they cheapen our experiences of suffering. So let's back up a little. I'm going to give you a little bit of background um, about the people who followed Jesus um, and the people of the early church. These people were not the movers and shakers of their day. Jesus' followers were on the margins in a number of different ways. They were poor. They were outcasts from everyday society because of their disabilities, diseases, gender, occupation, race, just to name a few examples. If they didn't participate in the Roman-sanctioned religious festivals or events, some of which condoned sexual abuse of children and women in their temples, they were ostracized or worse, tortured or killed. Taking up one's cross in this day was not just a reality for Jesus. It was a reality for anyone who disobeyed the law, even if it was just for reasons they couldn't control, like not being able to pay your taxes because you're too poor. Jesus' words here are immensely jarring to the disciples and those following him around. When we read passages like this, it is important to remember who Jesus' audience and followers were. Today, some of us are marginalized by our society for similar reasons. Some of us are given immense privileges, and I would say most of us probably have a mixed bag of both. So, when you consider Jesus as telling people who have little to nothing in the means of resources or acceptance from the larger society, these are some pretty serious words. You know, when I was reading this, um, this, this passage for the first time in preparation for this, I had a question that maybe a number of you had, which was, what on earth did Peter say to Jesus that made him so angry? I, I like to think that maybe it reinforced myth number five. Like, he said something like, Jesus, I think you need some me time. Do you, you need to go back up on that mountain for, for some prayer and R&R because all this suffering talk... It's just not what we were expecting from you. It's half-baked. i got to love that Peter mansplains Christian discipleship to Jesus. <laughs> anyway, why would Jesus tell a bunch of people who are already suffering that if they follow him, they need to prepare to suffer even more to the point of being tortured and killed? 
Well, first, I would say that this isn't so much instructive for them as it is a reality check. That is to say, one doesn't get close to Jesus by choosing suffering. Rather, the end result of following Jesus, the result of living one's life the way Jesus lived, also means to put yourself at the risk for the same death Jesus faced. Now, a word about self-denial, which is something that's talked about in this passage. Perhaps by now, you are beginning to get a picture of what self-denial is not. Christian self-denial, at least that which is kind of indicated in this passage, doesn't mean that the path to holiness or enlightenment is to wear a hair shirt, which is the early church equivalent of tough skin jeans only with small razors in the fabric instead of sandpaper. <laughs> Christian self-denial doesn't mean punishing yourself when you lie about your taxes again or binge for the 3,000th time on chocolate-covered pretzels. Christian self-denial doesn't mean giving up beer or Facebook for Lent, which can be a great spiritual practice, but this is not the kind of self-denial that Jesus is talking about here. To summarize, Christian self-denial is not a spiritual doubt. Christian self-denial is caring about we above me. See, in our modern society, it has been so ingrained into us that our lives and our priorities and our faith are all about the individual, that our decision-making defaults to what is best for me with disregard for others. We say things like, my journey, my walk with God, and what I believe When we hear self-denial today, we put emphasis on the word self. But really, the biblical understanding de-emphasizes self and puts the emphasis on the denial. Okay, so take a minute right now and look to your left and look to your right. Oh, you guys follow directions so well. Look in front of you and behind you. This is your Christian community. This is part of it anyway. So in Christian community, if we all prioritize the people sitting next to us, we all are cared for, self-included, right? Because somebody was looking at you. If we prioritize the individual, self-denial becomes about punishment, isolation, codependency, and emptiness. Are you beginning to kind of see what the difference is? So if Jesus is emphasizing self-denial and warning us that suffering is a byproduct of Christian life, what can we come to expect when we live in Christian community? A friend of mine on Facebook posted a great quote the other day by Christian activist and contemplative Richard Rohr that I think serves as a good starting point. It says, liberation theology, that is, which is a theology emphasizing liberation from social, political, and economic oppression, liberation theology, instead of legitimating the status quo, tries to read reality, history, and the Bible not from the side of the powerful, but from the side of the pained. 
Its beginning point is not sin management, but where is the suffering? This makes all the difference in how we read the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, those of you who are raised to be Christians, um, but in my Christian upbringing, I was taught that salvation was for me. Salvation meant recognizing how messed up I was and that I was not acceptable to God. I was taught that salvation meant that if I made Jesus my personal Lord and Savior, I would be forgiven for my sins. Now, my sins might be anything from lying to my mother about my grades or gossiping about the kid who sat behind me in geometry class or cheating on a test. But regardless of what my sins might be, becoming forgiven of them is my motivation for following Jesus. This kind of salvation is, as Rohr calls it, sin management. But the kind of salvation Jesus is talking about is so much bigger than me. Salvation means that my isolated and lonely life is connected to its calling. My life is swept into a purpose that is so inspiring, cosmic, redirected, and massive that I realize who I am a part of. I realize I am not just a me. I am part of a we. This we is my undocumented co-worker who is being paid $5 an hour to work 14-hour days. My we is my next-door neighbor who was wrongly arrested at gunpoint for looking like another black man who robbed the party store down the street a month back. My we are the teen survivors of a horrific shooting in a school, a place that many of them call their second home. My we is the same-sex couple who cannot find a church or reception hall willing to celebrate with them. My we is the queer student of color at the college down the street who doesn't have a faith community filled with people who look like them. These are just a few of my we's, all here in this small town alone. And yes, my we is also me. It means I am seen and loved and corrected and counseled. It means when I'm in an abusive relationship so insidious that I blame myself for all the emotional scars, I am seen. I am encouraged to leave and seek protection and care at a community member's home. If salvation is an act that opens my eyes to a cosmic community, Self-denial is the act of taking on the suffering of this beloved community as if it were my own. Suffering in community is standing in solidarity with those who need community. It is speaking to my U.S. representative about DACA protection repeatedly, even if it's inconvenient for me. It is my next-door neighbor and hearing their stories of racism in town and sharing it with leaders more apt to listen to me because I am white. It is taking part 
and the protests initiated by my teen friends who are scared of copycat crimes in their schools. It is offering to marry the same-sex friend, even if it means trouble with my denomination. It is volunteering my time and presence as an ally of my LGBTQIA student friends at the college down the street, even if it means even more trouble with my denomination. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not a key to financial abundance, spiritual tap dancing lessons, or a get out of jail card for the consequences of your tax filing problem. So I realize that this is probably like the worst marketing campaign in the world for becoming a Christian, because I'm going to tell it to you straight. If you follow Jesus, Jesus will lead you straight into the nail-scarred arms of the people who need you most, because that is where Jesus abides. So Holland United Church of Christ, here is your charge. Do you want to follow Jesus? Pick up your cross and follow him. Go find your we. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.